good evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will get started. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight, and Lord, I am thankful for the time that we've had to sing these songs, Lord, that are just good reminders of the victory we have with you, and Lord, just uh, good songs, so thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for the fellowship we were able to enjoy before church, and maybe some after as well. God, I pray that you would bless now the effort to preach your word. God, I pray that you'd use it to speak to our hearts. I pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I told us that we were going to be finished with our study of Psalm 112, and even as I announced that last week, I thought, I feel like there's still one more sermon in there, but I didn't want to wear us out on the psalm. And so as I was studying and getting ready for today, for tonight, I thought, okay, we're just going to visit it one more time. So we're going to be there one more time tonight. I know you'll be patient. I know it doesn't offend you that we're in 112 again this evening, but... uh, I don't want to be a liar either, but uh, anyways, turn to Psalm 112 if you're not already there. As you're finding your place there, I want to talk about something for just a moment that I know I have talked about before. I'm going to take it a little bit different direction than I have in the past, but I want to begin tonight's message by making this statement that no one has ever been born knowing everything about everything. Now, some people don't believe that of themselves, but no one has ever been born knowing everything about everything. So what that means then is this, is every one of us have had to be taught things at different times in our lives. Every one of us have had to receive some instruction. Every one of us have had to receive some kind of counsel because we are no different than anyone else. We don't know everything about everything. In fact, it's probably safe to say that no one knows everything about anything because there's still something to learn in almost every realm of life. That in mind, I want us to think about a statement that every one of us have heard in one form or another. I know it would be a variation of what I'm about to say, but every one of us, I would would suspect, we have heard this statement said to us at least once, and that is this, is that if it doesn't look like this when you get done, you did something wrong. Have you ever heard something like that? If when you get done, it doesn't look like this or it doesn't do this, then just know you did something wrong. It might be said something like this or maybe said in a way like this. Now, if after you've welded those two pieces of metal together, they don't stick together, you did something wrong because they should stick together after you've welded them. Somebody may say something like this. If the numbers are not the same in both columns when you get done, you've done something wrong somewhere in your math. It's a very simple principle. It's a very simple idea that if you have not accomplished this, if this has not been accomplished or or produced, then something has been done wrong. Now, if you're anything like me, here's what you would have to admit. That you don't like getting done with something realizing you did it wrong. 
but it's happened to all of us, right? I remember the very first time I did a tiling job at our house. I don't know how many YouTube videos I watched, but I watched as many YouTube videos as I could stand on how to cut tile, how to glue it to the floor, and how to do the grout. I did everything the way they instructed me to do it, and had they been there in person, you know what they would have said? Well, obviously you did something wrong because that's not what our video showed you to do. And I don't like that because every time I walk into the kitchen, here's what I can tell. I did something wrong. I don't know what it is, but the product proves I've done something wrong. So if that's happened to us, which I would imagine it has, we don't like it. And yet at the same time, you can't argue the end result. If the end result says this isn't right, then guess what? It wasn't right. So that in mind, tonight we're in Psalm 112, and as we are here one last time, I want us to, to think about the overall context of this chapter. We have been dealing with the blessings that accompany the person who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments. I stressed this from the very beginning of this study two months ago, that there is a difference between your general average blessings that everyone gets to enjoy versus those extraordinary special blessings that come to a select group of people, all right? I said two months ago that everyone who lives in the United States knows the blessings of God in their life. There's not one person in the United States who does not know the blessing of God in some way in their life but not everyone knows the full measure of God's blessings in their life because not everyone truly fears the Lord or delights in his commandments in the way that they ought. And so we've gone through some of the blessings, of course not all of them, but we've gone through some of the blessings that are available to that one who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments. And those blessings have been this, and I just want to remind us very briefly of what they've been it's been light in the midst of darkness. You may remember how we talked about how all of us go through scenarios that are new to us, and we don't know exactly what to do. We don't know exactly how to navigate, but if we are fearing the Lord and delighting in His commands like we're supposed to, then God will always give us the light we need to navigate through life properly. We don't have to make mistakes, and we don't have to have these big foul-ups that cause us great regret. You and I can have the light that we need to get through life without all the bumps and the scratches and the scrapes and, and even the falls at times. So that's been one of the blessings, to have the light in the midst of the darkness. The other, or another blessing has been this, freedom from fear. Whenever things happen that would otherwise cause a person to be afraid, to be alarmed, to be distressed in their emotions, if a person fears the Lord, delights greatly in his commandments like he should, then you and I do not have to be people who are afraid. We can have bad news, we can receive information that we'd rather not want to receive, and we can handle it appropriately and in a way that would bring honor to the Lord and please him. So that's been another blessing that we've looked at. A third blessing that we've considered is this, is stability in the midst of the storms of life. The storms of life are going to come, but the storms of life do not have to destroy us. 
I want us to think about this. This is important. The storms of life are going to come, but the storms of life do not have to destroy us. If we are real, if we are genuine, if we are solid, we'll be able to withstand what life throws at us rather than toppling us over and destroying us. And then last week we looked at this, that one of the blessings that comes in fearing the Lord and delighting greatly in His commands is that we are able to build a legacy that endures. We are able to build a legacy of righteousness and obedience that endures forever. If we're willing to give attention to the details, if we are willing to to correct whatever mistakes we make along the way, then we can have a legacy of righteousness and honoring the Lord, one that will far outlive the lives that we have on this earth. So I think those are pretty important blessings that are available if we do what it takes to obtain those blessings. And again, not everyone lives in such a way to have and enjoy those blessings. So very briefly, light in the darkness, freedom from fear, strength in the midst of the storms, and a legacy that endures. Now look in the last part of verse number 9 tonight. We're just going to touch on this very briefly. He says in the last part of verse number 9, His horn shall be exalted with honor. His horn shall be exalted with honor. Now that is obviously a statement and a phrase that you and I would not use on a regular basis. So, So what does that mean? Well, the general idea is said to be this, that for the one who fears the Lord, for the one who delights greatly in his commandments, this is going to be a person who is honored or who is respected or who is esteemed. Now, you know this as well as I do. Not everyone that we come into contact with is an honored individual. Not everyone that we come into contact with is respected and held in high esteem in the minds and in the eyes of others. And so this would be a blessing that would come to the one who lives as they should, that they are going to be honored, respected, and esteemed. So all that being said, the chapter kind of ends on a weird note. It ends in a way that I wouldn't suspect, and maybe you wouldn't suspect, but notice what it says in the last part, or rather just in the first part of the last verse. It says in verse number 10, the wicked shall see it and be grieved. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. Of course, he goes on to say, he shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. But tonight what we're going to deal with specifically is that first verse or that first statement in the verse, the wicked shall see it and be grieved. So we've got the wicked being referenced. The wicked are obviously referenced in verse number 10, right? All right. So you've got to ask this question if you want to understand this statement at all. What does it mean to be a wicked person? What is a wicked individual? What would the traits and the characteristics of a wicked person be? And if your brain works any way like my brain does, here's what you do. You go to the worst case scenario of an individual. This is what a wicked person does, or this is what a wicked person is. A wicked person would be profane, would they not? I mean, that would certainly be a sign of of wickedness to be profane in one's language. A wicked person would be someone like this, in my mind, they're immoral. They, They have no moral compass about them, and so they live an immoral way of life because they are wicked. We might say it like this, they're a liar. 
They're a cheat. They're a mean individual to be around. They have sinful habits and sinful addictions. That's how I would describe a wicked person if somebody were to ask me just randomly what would define or make up a wicked person. But what we've got to be reminded of tonight is this, is that wickedness is not quite so blatant in all of its actions. See, the word wicked just means this, to be ungodly. What does it mean to be ungodly? It just means this, to go through one's life not really mindful of God in your everyday life. An ungodly person is a wicked person, and what makes that person wicked because of their ungodliness is this, is that they really go through life not giving any consideration to the authority of God in their life like they ought for this reason. They don't really fear the Lord like they're supposed to, and they don't really delight greatly in His commandments like they ought. See, here's a a reality that we sometimes lose sight of. Some of the wicked people that we know are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. It's not that they're not good people. It's just that they're not godly people. I want us to think about this. You can have good kids in your youth group, but a good kid doesn't equal a godly kid. And if a kid is not godly in how they live, they are then ungodly by obvious definition and by default. And if a child, a young person in the youth department, is not godly, though they may be a good kid, since they are ungodly in how they go throughout their daily lives, that would then put them in the category as wicked. Now somebody says, Brother Kyle, that's terrible, that's awful. No, I'm just saying, how else would we explain it? If a young person can go to school and go throughout their entire day and not really give any significant thought to how God would have them to live, how God would have them to act in the midst of all their friends and all their activities, if they can go through their days at school and give no real consideration to God, that means they are ungodly, which equates them then as being wicked. That's terrible. I don't know what else to tell us. You can have a young adult in a church service, in a, in a church setting. And they may be a great young person. But if they don't have a godly mentality toward life, you know what they are? They're ungodly. Which makes them what? Wicked. Now, again, somebody says, Brother Kyle, I can't believe you'd say such a thing. They're such a good, kind, sweet person. I mean, they've come over and they've done really good things for me before. And, and they're very friendly to me every time they see me at church. Who cares? 
if friendliness and kindness is the only mark of godliness that we need, then there are a lot of godly people who also identify as atheists. I'm just saying it takes more to being godly than being a good, kind, friendly, thoughtful young person. And for those of us who are past the age of identifying ourselves as a young person, we need to remember this. It doesn't matter how good we are. If we're not godly in our approach to life, then we are ungodly. If I can go through my day and if you can go through your day and, and God doesn't factor into our decisions and God doesn't factor into our way of life, if God doesn't factor into our interaction with others, if we pretty much live however we want to live, if that is the approach to life that we take, then friends, that makes us ungodly, which makes us wicked. I'm just trying to establish this for all of us to understand this. A wicked person is not just profane and moral with really bad habits and they're mean to everybody they come into contact with. Some wicked people attend church every time the doors are open. They know everything that's supposed to be said in a church-like setting, but they go through their daily lives with no consideration of God and His authority. So whenever the psalmist writes of the wicked, we've got to keep in mind that that could be almost anyone. So he said next in verse number 10, the wicked shall see it. So they're going to see something, these wicked, ungodly people. What are they going to see? I think context kind of forces us to come to this conclusion. They're going to see the one who is blessed by God in extraordinary ways. As a godly person who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments comes into contact with an ungodly person, the longer that those two have interaction with one another, here's what the ungodly is going to see. They are going to see that this person that they come into contact with seems to have light in the midst of darkness. I mean, according to the context, what else would they see? So the ungodly, the wicked, is going to see this person who, who has light in the midst of darkness, that, that they always seem to know what needs to happen. They're going to see that this one who is blessed has, has this freedom from fear. They're not always distressed emotionally based on information they hear. They're, they're going to see someone who has strength in the midst of the storm. They're going to see someone who is building a legacy that endures, and they're going to see someone who is honored and respected and and esteemed in this life. That's what the wicked is going to see. Are, are we hearing this? That is what the wicked is going to see, these blessings that have been written about in this psalm. Now, now notice what it says next, because this is, in my opinion, it's just kind of interesting. It says, the wicked shall see it, all these things that have been mentioned, and here's what their response will be and be grieved. What does it mean to be grieved? I think you and I would tend to think it means to be saddened, right? 
I mean, if I'm grieved, I'm thinking that I'm saddened. If you're grieved, I'm thinking that you're saddened. If we see somebody who is grieving, we think, well, they must be sad about something. Well, that's okay in many of the circumstances or the context of things. But the word grieved also means this, to be vexed. To be vexed. So what does it mean to be vexed? It means for something to be discussed or disputed. For something to be discussed or disputed, but it also means to be a source of irritation or an annoyance. It's also problematic. It, it like stirs up problems in the person. Not real exciting right now, but, but think about this. You've got this person who is fearing the Lord and delighting greatly in the commandments of the Lord, right? I mean, that, that's what the Scripture's been talking about the last seven weeks, fearing the Lord, delighting greatly in His commands. All right, so you've got this person who is doing this, and then here is an ungodly person. They come along, and they see this person who's no different than them, has the, the same kind of life and, and the same set of circumstances in so many ways as they do, but here is what the wicked person sees. Here is what the ungodly person sees. They see this person that has light in the darkness, who has stability in the midst of the storms, all these different things, and here is what it does. It causes them to discuss this and to even dispute it, to maybe be irritated or annoyed or problematic. We might say it like this. To the ungodly watching the godly enjoy all these benefits of fearing the Lord, it starts to irritate them because it doesn't make sense to them anymore. See, it's questions like this. How do they seem to avoid so many of the mistakes that I tend to make? It's problematic because they need to answer that question, right? And it's a source of annoyance and it's a source of irritation because they just want to see this person have the same problems that they've got. Why don't you make the same mistake with your kids that we've made with our kids? It's kind of irritating. Why don't you and your wife have the same problems that me and my wife have? Why aren't you and your spouse in the same financial wreck that me and my spouse are in? That's kind of irritating. You, you see the idea here? The wicked see all this and it grieves them. It creates these questions in their mind that they have to dispute, that they have to discuss. It's problematic because to look at how this person is blessed, it makes no sense. How is it that you don't seem to make all the same mistakes that everyone else seems to make? It's problematic in this regard. How do you keep from getting so emotionally charged when things happen that you don't like? I mean, really, how do you keep your cool? This makes no sense. 
How is it that this can happen and it doesn't stress you out? How is it that you can go through this and, and you're not just a, a big old ball of emotions ready to explode? That, that's what the ungodly are asking of the godly. How is it that, that your life is not just one big ticking time bomb about to explode? That, that really is what the ungodly are asking of the godly. They're asking questions like this because of the annoyances and the irritations, because they, they don't like seeing someone enjoying the blessings. They're, they're saying things like this. How did that not completely destroy you? Other people have gone through things like that and it completely destroyed them. They had a, they had a nervous breakdown. They had an emotional breakdown. They, they, they just kind of went nuts. How, how did that not do that to you? They don't know how to answer those questions because it doesn't make sense to them. They want answers to questions like this. How is it that you're so respected by the people who know you? People just, they, they respect you and they hold you in high esteem and, and you're no different than any of us. How is it that that happens? It really is a true statement, isn't it? You come into contact with an ungodly person who has come into contact with a godly person, and you know what bugs the ungodly person to pieces? Is that that person's life isn't as messed up as theirs. Your life should be as messed up as mine, but it isn't. That irritates me. It annoys me. I spend time discussing this in my mind. I spend time discussing this with others. I spend time wrestling with all this. How does that happen? And what is the answer? The answer is simple. This person fears the Lord, delights greatly in his word. And that's the side effect of all that. So, so get this, please. A godly person totally gets it. Come on now. A godly person totally gets why that's happening in the life of a godly person because they've seen the same thing happen in their life. All right. So the ungodly person is railing against the godly person. The ungodly person is saying, well, how in the world does that happen? And this person says, well, it's because they fear the Lord and they delight greatly in his commandments. And the ungodly person says, well, that's stupid. That makes no sense. That's ridiculous. Well, yeah, I wouldn't expect you to understand it because you've never done it. But if you would do it, then it would make sense to you as to how they have come to this place in their life. Now, I want us to see this, okay? That is what we should be producing in the lives of the ungodly who come into contact with us. See, when an ungodly person spends time with us and gets to know us very well, you know what our lives should be to them? Quite perplexing. And it should vex them. Whoever you come into contact with, 
who is not godly, they are ungodly, therefore they are wicked. Again, not that they're bad people, but they just don't consider God. Here is what should be produced in them as a result of being around you. How does that happen? How do you know how to make right decisions? How do you not get distressed? How do you withstand the storms of life? How are you building this legacy? Why are you honored and respected amongst your peers? That should be the questions that our lives are creating. Which then brings me to this point. If our lives are not creating that in the lives of the, un of the ungodly, then we're doing something wrong. If my life and your life, if it's not bringing up questions in the mind of the ungodly, and I don't mean this in the wrong spirit or in the wrong way, but if our life isn't annoying the ungodly just a little bit, we're doing something wrong. Because if we're godly like we're supposed to be, we will stand out from the ungodly and what we're able to enjoy will not make sense to them. Now here's kind of a follow-up to that, and that would be none of us want to think that we're not doing it right. Correct? But the final result kind of proves whether or not we are. Our lives, listen, our lives are kind of like my tile and grout at the house. There's no denying what was actually produced. I could say to you, oh no, I did it right. I did everything I was supposed to. No, I did it right. It must be the grout's fault. Uh, no, no, it's not the grout's fault. It's not the tile's fault. It just did what you had it do. So here's what happens in the lives of a lot of believers. The life that we live doesn't create all the questions and, and the irritations and the annoyances in the life of the ungodly. But we want to say, well, it's not our fault. It's all these other circumstances and it's all these other situations. And that's the only reason that, that, that things aren't really different between me and them. It's all these other things that I can't control. No, that's nonsense. Because everyone has storms. Everyone has battles. Everyone has situations. Everyone has questions. And for the one who is walking with the Lord, fearing him and delighting in his commands like he should, they know the blessings in a way that nobody else can. So if we're not creating those questions of, of things like, how in the world are you able to do that? If our lives are not provoking those kinds of questions, then we're doing and we've done something wrong. 
That said, let me just make this clear. That conversation doesn't have to happen every day in order for us to be right with God. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? You don't have to have people annoyed at you every day. If you do, there are probably other issues that need to be addressed. And it needs to be the right kind of annoyance at you, not because you are annoying. But what I am saying is this, is as the ungodly get to know us, as they look at us, and as they see what is produced in us, they ought to see something that is so contrary to how they live that it's problematic for them. That it's something that makes them say, it just doesn't make sense, it just doesn't add up. And if that's not how we're living, we've done something wrong. Can the ungodly truly see something different in you than it sees in themselves and everyone else they come into contact with? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to realize that we are going to come into contact with ungodly people in all areas of life. It may be in our home. It may be with extended family. It could be church family, friends, co-workers, whomever. And God, we need to be living in such a way that it just doesn't make sense to the ungodly. And again, Lord, I know we all want to assume that we're that kind of a person. But it may not be true. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be honest before you as to whether or not we fear you, delight in your commandments as we ought, or if we're just going through the motions. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.